Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com A Living History Production I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, Today, uh, I'm Peter Hart, and today I'm joined as a special surprise package by Gary Bain. Oh, hello. (laughs) The disappointment must be... Crushy. I'm a surprise package. <laughs> a lot of people thinking, oh, thank God we've got something new for a change. But no, it's the same old Pete and Gary. <sighs> what are we doing today, Gary? Well, today, Pete, ah! we're continuing with our, our long-running series on Jutland. And tonight, 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 today, <laughs> it's called Frenzy in the Night. I remember a frenzy in the night about 1984. Yeah, how old, Justin? <laughs> now, uh, so so this is we we started talking about the night action. So what's been happening is the German high seas fleet is cutting across the path of the Grand Fleet, which was sailing on a southerly course. So they're cutting across now. Jellicoe had got his main force of dreadnoughts uh, in 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 in. in tightly packed together, and then behind them, about five or six miles behind, were the destroyer and light cruisers. Uh, but why do you think he didn't want them next to his dreadnoughts? Well, because they'd be easy targets. Oh, uh, no, no, because they'd probably sink the dreadnoughts being half-witted. Oh, of course. half. I should have thought of the half-witted question, wasn't I? Yeah. So, <laughs> basically, he's trying to prevent the... Uh, Some uh, awful, disastrous, calamitous cocker. But he's also trying to prevent the Germans, the high seas fleet, from actually getting back to home port. He's yeah. tried to position between them and Germany. So, he's heading to cut to, to, to cut off one thing of escape with a dreadnought next morning, but... In his head, he's thinking, oh, I'll block off the Horns Reef way with, uh, route as well. So it's two things. He's doing two things. He's quite bright, isn't he? Yeah. So, so basically... We've looked at one... Yeah, we've looked at one series of battles where they hadn't done very well, had they, the light forces? And they got through them. But what's the next possible barrier, would you say, to, to, to the high seas fleet uh, progress? 
Uh, well, it's the fourth flotilla under the command of Captain Charles Wintour, who's aboard the Tipperary. And who's with him, Gary? <laughs> oh dear. These are not German, Pete, and yet you're asking me to say well, them. Well, there's one I can't pronounce. Well, behind him steamed the Spitfire, the Sparrowhawk, the Garland, the Contest, the Broke, uh, the Akartes. Not sure about that. <laughs> the Ambuscade, the Ardent, the Fortune, the Porpoise. And the unity. I, I thought that. that's purpose for a while, but it's the porpoise. I get the feeling with some of those names, like porpoise, that they were coming to the end. <laughs> There's a lot of destroyers in the British Navy, Royal Navy. Yeah. I think they were struggling a bit with that one. Uh, so, so, uh, uh, so, they, 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 can you imagine the, the situation? The, 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 who's leading the main German battle fleet? It's not who would normally lead, is it? Well, it's led by the Westfalen and the accompanying screen of light cruisers, cruisers, and they, that was fast approaching them. And at around yeah, fast approaching the destroyers, force, yeah, yeah. yeah force at around twenty three fifteen, leading leading torpedo man Cox Morris. Uh, that's yeah. Morris Cox. Yes, was at his action station on the foremost torpedo tube aboard the Garland, which was fourth in the long line. Yeah. And what does he say, Gary? Having excellent eyesight in those days, I sighted the blur of three ships on our starboard quarter, their bow waves showing faintly. They were apparently converging on our line of destroyers and were becoming more distinct. I reported these facts to the bridge. With night glasses, ships were seen by the bridge and so reported to the Tipperary. It appeared that the Tipperary rather ignored the fact that ships were in the vicinity, although at the time we had wonderful targets. Yeah, this is the recurring problem, isn't it? Now, uh, so is it anyone's fault? Well, in one face, aboard the Tipperary, there's uh, we, uh, Captain Charles uh, Wintour. Uh, how would you describe his state of mind? Well, he's uh, both literally and figuratively Gary. in the dark. He'd no idea where the Germans were. But... Of equal concern, he also was in woeful ignorance of the state of the British dispositions, other than some sort of vague awareness that the 11th flotilla was somewhere to the west, effectively off their starboard bow. That's the ones we were talking about in the last uh, podcast episode. So uh, how would you describe this succinctly? Because I know you like things to be succinct. Uh, it's a recipe, Pete, for disaster. <gasps> dun, dun, dun! <laughs> Now, that's because the ships that had been sighted on the starboard quarter were the Stuttgart, the Hamburg, the Rostock and Elbing. And they're, they're, they're ahead of the aforementioned Westfalen. Uh, and who's behind the Westfalen? The whole long line of the high seas fleet still steadily pursuing their course, chopping right through the British destroyer flotillas stationed at the rear of the Grand Fleet. Another little summary for those who weren't quite listening to the first time when we said that. So, uh, so what does Morris Cox do now? Leading torpedo man, Morris Cox. Remember, he's on board the Garland, fourth flotilla. What's he say? It can only be imagined Tipperary had no knowledge of the disposition of British units. If she had a challenge, uh, would not have been made, but an order for a torpedo attack by all our flotilla. We were at very close range to the enemy without them knowing of our presence. A full discharge of torpedoes would undoubtedly have turned the course of the battle. So, yeah, well, as, as is implied by his words, at around 11.30, Captain Charles Winter is he's riddled with uncertainty. I mean, oh, there's also that question of whether he had the pox. Oh, God. <laughs> 
But he's riddled with lots of things. Um, he, he just felt that he had to challenge. He doesn't know who they are. He's scared that they might be British. And what did we say about torpedoes or, or, or shells once they've been fired? Well, you can't do anything about it. You can't call them off. No, you can't. Uh, now, the, the ships are getting closer and closer and closer and closer. Uh, the, the range is below a 1,000 yards, Gary. So they were getting closer? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not far at sea, is it? Come on. No, and it was to be his first and last mistake. Yeah, the moment the British recognition signals are hoisted, the blinded German searchlights flick on and the deadly shadows in front of, in front of the British open up with a searing barrage of fire from a point-blank range of, what was it, Gary? I think it was about 600 yards. Now, the fire of the light cruisers, the German light cruisers just listed by you, uh, was supplemented by the secondary 5.9-inch batteries of the Westphalen and the Nassau. In, uh, they're the ones at the front of the Brit uh, German dreadnoughts. Now, wow, what a thing. So, Sub-Lieutenant Newton William Powlett, his parents were... Uh, unimaginative, uh, was at his station aboard the Tipperary and he was on a small after-control platform for the three aft four-inch guns. And he says this, They were so close that I remember the guns seemed to be firing from some appreciable height above us. At about the same instant, the Tipperary shook violently from the impact of being hit by shells. I was told afterwards that the first salvo hit the bridge and it must have killed the captain and everyone there. So that's that's why it was Wintour's last mistake. I opened fire with the afterguns as soon as the enemy opened on us. Proper spotting was out of the question, but crouching behind the canvas screen in my control position, I felt much safer with this thin weather screen between me and the enemy guns, though it wouldn't have kept out a spent rifle bullet. I yelled at the guns to fire. Oh, I think they heard me. <laughs> I seem to have gone cockney for a moment there. Oh, I think they heard me. <laughs> but they opened fire. Oh, no, that was Northern. But they opened fire all right. During this time, both of our starboard torpedo tubes were fired. But the enemy was so close that I think the initial dive that torpedoes usually take as they enter the water made them go under the enemy ships. The enemy's second salvo hit and burst one of our main steam pipes and the after part of the ship was enveloped in a cloud of steam through which I could see nothing. Now, I want to make a remark. I shouldn't have made a joke about Captain Winter. Uh, I'd forgotten what happened to him. Uh, that was out in bad taste. Now, I apologise. Uh, <laughs> I mean it for once. Uh, poor chap. He made his mistake. It but he paid for it. He paid for it. Also... It was a sort of mistake. It's all very well for us sat at home to say, well, he should have opened fire. But he didn't know who was there. He didn't know what was happening. He didn't know. He, he made a mistake. And as you say, he paid for it with his life. So uh, I, I shouldn't have made a joke about him. Poor sod. Anyway, the, now that I've got my sackcloth and ashes on. Now, most of the German searchlights and guns were trained on the hapless Tipperary. Behind them, despite the surprise and the shock of the encounter, the Spitfire, Sparrowhawk, Garland, Contest and Broke leapt into action, fired their torpedoes and sheared away to port. Now, you're going to tell us what Lieutenant Athelstan Bush, now he's on HMS Spitfire, Fourth Flotilla says. We immediately opened fire and at the same time, the captain turned the ship away to bring the after-torpedo tube to bear. 
we fired a torpedo, then waited until, much to our joy and relief, it was seen to get the second enemy ship between the funnel and the main mast, and she seemed to stop firing, heel over, and all her lights went out. But instead of the violent explosion we expected to see, there appeared a kind of dull red glow, and then fire seemed to spread forward and aft from where she was hit. Now, uh... We don't know which torpedo went where, do we? They didn't know at the time, so how the bloody hell would we know now? Uh, uh, what, 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 what depends, what, what determines a hit, in your view, as an intellectual? God, you, thanks, mate. Now, hits depended on a complicated formula of luck, mathematical probability, and the degree of skill demonstrated on both sides in the opposed disciplines of torpedo aiming and evasion. That's quite a sub- Up a bit, left a bit, <laughs> fire. Is it not X squared minus Y to Probably. the power? Probably. <laughs> well, it's beyond us, isn't it? So every one of those torpedo captains in the line fourth of the fourth uh, flotilla is going through a sort of torment, aren't they? Um there they are sailing along tense but you know the quiet of their evening suddenly rudely shattered uh, and no one knows what's happening you've got to we've got to make this clear and get that it's just a complete they, they don't know and what does that lead to what does not knowing lead to I think you're referring to the crippling doubt and uncertainty of night fighting, which undermined their resolve and thereby their combat effectiveness. It's almost impossible to shrug off the fear that, after all, perhaps a terrible mistake had been made. This is your point earlier. Once it's fired, it's fired. So each skipper makes his own lightning assessment. And and it's... To me, it's not a surprise that the rearmost ships fail to fire their torpedoes. They're, they're, well, to use a, they're hamstrung, aren't they, by uncertainty and doubt. Uh, and this is all part of this thing of, of, um, they hadn't had enough night training. And that is a major thing that we laid at Jellicoe's door. There's not much else that we, you know, we, we really get into Jellicoe for, but this is something he should have done more night training. There's another problem about the, it's the prevailing doctrine of, amongst the torpedo specialists and the, in the destroyers. Uh, what's that? Uh, that not all their eggs, as it were, should uh, be put into one basket. Uh, only one or at most two torpedoes were fired by each destroyer. The remainder were retained for later use. As success depended on the number of torpedoes thrown across the enemy line, it's not surprising that the results were meagre. So they didn't fire many torpedoes. Now, this this is madness. What better target would they ever get than, than, than these cruisers, light cruisers and dreadnoughts? Well, for a few minutes, the full flotilla succeeded in deflecting the high seas fleet from the very precise course of of its escape route. Now, unfortunately, when Shear reached the uh, bend in the line caused by the leading ships turning away, he instantly realised what was happening and issued an immediate course correction that swung the line back on target for the Horns Reef Sanctuary. That's because, what did we say... He wasn't going to change. They had to get there as quickly as possible. There could be no pissing about. (laughs) Those were his very words. Those were his very words, yeah. Uh, Well, let's go back to Spitfire. How's the Spitfire faring? Well, she'd already been hit by several German shells and was therefore unable to fire her remaining torpedoes. So that's not her fault. uh. No. And she turned back to go to the assistance of the burning Tipperary. Then, looming out of the dark, they saw a German ship coming towards them across the port bow. 
Well, uh, they, they, we've got to be sympathetic here to Captain, I think it's Trelawney, I've forgotten his first name. Captain Trelawney's in charge of, uh, of the Spitfire. Uh, and he, he and his crew, uh, they think that this, well, what do they think? This shows the confusion. What do they think? Well, they're convinced they were facing a German light cruiser. And what was it? <laughs> it's the uh, 20,000 tonne battleship Nassau. Uh, that the uh, 935-ton destroyer was preparing out of necessity to ram. How does this go? <laughs> well, this is once more Lieut- Lieutenant Athelstan Bush aboard HMS Spitfire. The two ships met head-on, port bow to port bow. We were steaming at almost 27 knots. She steaming at not less than 10 knots and perhaps 20 or more. You can imagine how the 8-inch plates of a destroyer would feel under such a blow. That's an eighth of an inch. Sorry, eighth that's of an inch. Sorry. sorry, I just realised. <laughs> eighth of an inch. <coughs> I can recollect a fearful crash, then being hurled across the deck and feeling the Spitfire rolling over to starboard, as no sea ever made her roll. As we bumped, the enemy opened fire with their forecastle guns, though luckily they could not depress them to hit us. But the blast literally cleared everything before it. Our foremast came tumbling down. Our forward searchlight found its way from its platform above the forebridge down to the deck, and the foremost funnel was blown back until it rested neatly between the two foremost ventilation cows, like the hinging funnel of a Penny River, River steamboat. Now, just before the actual impact, two shells crashed through the screen of the bridge. Remember we said they often seem to aim at the bridge, killing almost everyone there, but Captain Trelawney miraculously escaped without a scalp wound. But what happens to him, Gary? It's, it's, uh, it just, it's a fantastic Well, yeah, story. I mean, he does escape with a, a light wound, but he's blown right off the bridge onto the main deck. I bet that hurt, though. Yeah, I bet that hurt, and the Spitfire was in a dreadful state. Now, the, 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 you, you've got. Can you picture this? The, this twenty thousand ton monstrosity in this nine hundred and thirty, and they crash at a combined speed of some forty knots. Um, but and, and this, the the crunch is such that even that's how doesn't escape uh, unscathed. It's a sort of David and Goliath encounter, isn't it? Except that uh, this is in the more realistic situation where the Goliath wins. But the the, the, but the even so, some twenty feet of the Nassau's armour plating have been wrenched off her port side and came to rest on the forecastle of the Spitfire. It was the ultimate souvenir of their what encounter. A lovely souvenir, twenty four. <laughs> now, um, so what's uh, so the uh, me. Meanwhile, what's happening? Well, the survivors of 4th Flotilla, they form up with behind the Broke, which is commanded by the half-flotilla leader, Commander Walter Allen. So behind him, they've got in loose order the Sparrowhawk, Garland, Contest, Ardent, Fortune, and my favourite, the Porpoise. Or Porpoise. Porpoise. Anyway. Uh, now, Allen tries to lead them back to the attack. Uh, uh, what state of mind is he in? Well, don't consider for a moment that anyone had any clear idea what was happening. Uh, About 23.40, they sighted once again indistinct shadows in the gloom on the starboard bow. Who is it? Who who is that masked ship? Well, that was the Westphalen. Once again, before anyone on the destroyer could react, their huge adversary opened up with a torrent of well-directed shellfire. Oh, wow. You know, so... um... 
What do you think uh, the the impact of uh, a few seconds of uh, the the secondary armament of the Westfalen? Five point nine inch guns. They're the same caliber as the, the the big guns on the west. Of, the, you know the guns that caused so much damage on the western front. What effect do they have on the Spitfire? Well, they certainly. Oh, nulli- sorry, it broke. Well, they certainly nullify any threat that the broke might have posed. Her crew were effectively helpless in the face of uh, their enemies. Now, once naked, more, naked. Indeed, once more, despite having made the challenge. The Germans got in the vital first broadside at a range where every shot counted and markedly reduced the chance of any effective reply. And this is uh, Lieutenant Irvin, uh, <laughs> Lieutenant Irvine <laughs> Glenny. He's changed sides. <laughs> Lieutenant Irvine Glenny aboard HMS Broke of the 4th Flotilla. We got off two or three rounds and never fired the mouldy. As the captain of the tube considered they had not got a good target. Hmm. Uh, I say two or three rounds because all hands were laid out before any more could be got off. We were hit many times, mostly by six inch, or I suppose 5.9 inch really. They did a lot of damage, killing or wounding all the gun crews, the quartermaster and all the four supply and fire parties. 50 men killed and 30 wounded all told. Not bad work for one or two minutes. I was hit in the face by a few very small splinters and had rather a shock from one six inch which burst quite close. In fact, how we all escaped, I don't know. Our helm and telegraphs are out of action and the steam from the forecastle boiler was roaring off, drowning out all orders. Now, now, then something even worse happens. What happens? Well, to compound the damage, there came a crushing blow as they ran into HMS Sparrowhawk oh. under heavy fire and could do nothing to avoid the collision. No, both ships have got no chance. Just, they just run into each other. They had a terrible impact. Most of the crews that absolutely shocked they're thrown off their feet uh, and they drift up they, 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 they're locked together for a while and they drift off from the center of the battle um uh, and they're left behind they're left behind uh it, it was uh, 30 minutes before the broke was able to back away from the jealous embrace as i put in the book which is awful <laughs> of the sparrowhawk uh, and I also, <laughs> what? How do I describe? I wonder what it? you had on your mind because you also said after their torrid but mutually unsatisfying encounter, the two crippled ships eventually parted like strangers in the night. Right, I'm going to say Nigel Steele wrote that, and then I'm going <laughs> to. Dear, oh dear. What was on your mind? I've no idea. <laughs> now, as a result of this series of mishaps, the prospect of any cohesive attack by the remnants of the false flotilla had inevitably broken down as each destroyer took emergency evasive action to avoid adding to the pile-up in front. So they're trying to avoid the, the, the broken, the, the sparrowhawk. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so who, who's got the leadership now and your favourite ship coming up? Well, it was passed to Commander Reginald Hutchison of the Akates. I'm going to spell that. A-C-H-A-T-E-S. How do you pronounce I mean, come on, Pontus. How do you say that? Akates is how I would go for it. But knowing the Navy, it's Hutchitis. Now, behind them were the Ambuscade, the Ardent, the Fortune, the Porpoise, and the Garland. And soon they were once more closing in on the long line of German dreadnoughts crossing the wake it's, of the Grand like, Fleet. It's like a bumper car, isn't it? There's a bump off and then... Wow. Um, so what What happens again? I mean, this is getting well, this frustrating. Well, this several times, isn't it? During the night, the British destroyers should really have firmly identified the ships as German well before they were surprised by the deluge of fire. 
Uh, this is let's hammer it home what should we hammer home it's your turn to hammer it home well hampered by their complete lack of training in night tactics their commanding officers waited far too long to be sure and thus surrendered the vital initiative of being first to open fire yeah so for instance the fortune gets into a bit of an unequal duel who with the dreadnought Oldenburg. How did that go? Well, it didn't last long as the fortune was sunk. Yeah, with a heavy loss of life. I mean, it, it, that's the thing. This is a brutal business. Um, once again, though, what, uh, what 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 makes you so frustrated? Well, several of the fourth flotilla destroyers, marriage and sex life. Several of the fourth flotilla destroyers failed to fire their torpedoes. That does sound like my marriage. <laughs> uh, and those that did, any any reward? No, uh, ill-rewarded for their effort, efforts as the dreadnoughts evaded them with relative ease. Now, uh, at this point, HMS Ardent runs into yet more trouble. And then I'm going to tell you what Lieutenant Commander Arthur Marsden, he's a bit of a hero of mine. It, in the in the Jutland book, there's loads for, about this, but we've got to cut it short. Uh, he says this, uh, I found myself, al- this is him and his destroyer, Arden. I found myself alone and so resumed the course of the fleet and increased speed, hoping to pick up the rest of my division. Smoke was reported right ahead, which I thought would be theirs. But as I got nearer, realised that it was a big ship on exactly the opposite course. I attacked at once and from a very close range, our remaining torpedoes were fired. But before I could judge the effect, the enemy switched on searchlights and found us once more. I then became aware that the Ardent was tackling a division of German battleships. However, we opened fire and ran on at full speed. The next moments were perhaps the most thrilling that anyone could experience. Thrilling. Hmm. Our guns were useless against such big adversaries. Our torpedoes were fired. We could do no more but just wait in the full glare of the blinding searchlights for the shells that could not fail to hit us at such close range. There was perfect silence on the bridge, and not a word was spoken. It must have been only seconds, but it seemed like hours. At last it came, and as the first salvo hit, I heard a seaman ejaculate, almost under his breath. Ooh. As one does to a bursting rocket. Ooh. <laughs> Amazing. Shit, but it's not funny, is it? Because... What happens is terrible. Shell after shell hit us, and our speed diminished and then stopped. Then the dynamo stopped, and all the lights went out. Our three guns that had been barking away like goodens ceased firing one by one. I looked on the forecastle and saw and heard the captain of the forecastle exhorting the only man of his gun's crew to give them one more. But that one more was never fired, and I saw later both those brave souls stretched out dead. I myself was wounded by almost the first salvo, but felt no great pain or discomfort. The actual feeling when I was struck was if I'd been hit on the thigh with an iron bar, although eventually a piece of shell about as big as my little finger was taken out of me. The enemy ship suddenly switched off lights and ceased fire. And, uh, well, there's two things I make that. I personally have always found that being hit on the thigh by an iron bar hurts a lot. Have you felt it? Yeah, I think that would probably hurt quite a lot. Uh, but anyway, to go on, uh, the Ardent sinks. Uh, Marsden's story goes on into the water in the book. It's a fantastic story. It, he's and, a real And there hit. is a grievous loss of life. As you yeah. said, on a number of occasions, when things go wrong at sea, they go very wrong very quickly. And a lot of people are killed. And a lot of people and, die. And you don't get people with lovely little wounds. Don't in get the a blighty. Arm. You don't get a blighty. You just get deaded. 
Right, now, there's another tragic story going on because behind them, another stray British ship had blundered into the line of the high seas fleet. Who is this? This is the Black Prince, and uh, she'd been separated from the rest of the first cruiser squadron as the Grand Fleet was deploying at 1820. Oh, so it's hours before. Yeah, since then, she'd been trying to rejoin the fleet. Now, in a sense... She repeated the mistake of her sister ship's defence and warrior, as in all ignorance, she wandered into the path of the high seas fleet. Wow. And you're going to be Cadet Heinz Bernatz of SMS Nassau. That's one of the big buggers. Three uh, dreadnoughts is a highly technical term. We suddenly sighted a cruiser with four funnels, HMS Black Prince. It immediately came under fire from three other ships. Within a few minutes, the cruiser was a glowing wreck and sank after a mighty explosion. A horrible but imposing sight. Uh, now, uh, funnily enough, in the book I've got another, because uh, somebody saw, one of the sinking British ships saw her appear like a ghost ship and then just slowly sink. It was a weird sight. Uh, what, what would you say the loss of the Black Prince shows? Well, it's another reminder of the vulnerability of the outmoded armoured cruisers and the dreadful cost in human lives, as 857 men lost their lives in an episode of staggering futility. 857, so that's the thing, they're not small ships. And at this point, we'll just take a short break. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Now, by uh, 0030, that's half past midnight, the fourth flotilla had shot their bolt. 
They uh, conspicuously failed to launch coordinated mass torpedo attacks, but had undoubtedly fought courageously as valiant seamen all too literally stuck to their guns. Oh, God, that's a... T- <laughs> yes, thank you, Gary. Uh, now, unfortunately, in all the confusion, the, the press of events, not one of the destroyers, commanding officers, had, had done something that you'd have thought they might have made time for. And yes, we know, we know, but... Surely they had another job. What hadn't they done? Well, to be fair to them, they neither had had the time or the presence of mind to wireless informal contact reports to Jellicoe. But, I mean, they're in the middle of engagements. During the engagements, they'd held the future of the high seas fleet within their grasp. But in failing to launch coordinated attacks or to report the presence of the German dreadnoughts, they'd allowed it to slip through their fingers. Yeah, so for all their heroic... And we, 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 we mean it, efforts. They, they hadn't achieved much, had they? No. No, no, no. But Jellicoe too, he's deeply culpable for their failure. Yeah. His decision not to risk the Grand Fleet in a night engagement was entirely logical. We back him up 100%. But his failure over the previous two years, as you've mentioned, to ensure that his destroyers and light cruisers were properly equipped and trained for such an eventuality was not. That's not logical. That is a mistake. That's absolutely right. Now, uh, now there's another drama unfolding. Uh, as, as you know, the, the, the light forces are trying, although they don't know what they're doing, to prevent the passage of the high seas fleet. But another drama's unfolding. What's this? The German battlecruisers Seidlitz and Moltke had become separated from the main body of the high seas fleet and, conscious of their vulnerability... They surreptitiously began their efforts to pass through the British line and escape to safety. Now, what, 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 vulnerability? What do I mean? Well, the Seidlitz in particular was badly damaged and her crew had a dreadful time trying to keep her seaworthy whilst preparing for possible battle. It could happen at any moment. Uh, the Maltka uh, pulled slowly away from the Seidlitz uh, and the two lose touch. So you've got these two isolated. Uh, Incredibly valuable ships, battlecruisers, trying to get back. Now, at 22.30, the Moltke sights four large ships on the port beam. Uh, Now, what does she do? Well, not knowing who they were, she displayed her coloured German recognition lights. Ha! So, that's the end of her, I presume. Well, you would think so. In doing so, she, she must have sealed her doom, mustn't she? That's the end of her, then. So, that's great. Yeah, because the indistinct blurs were the British dreadnoughts Orion, Monarch, Conqueror and Thunderer of the 2nd Division 2nd Battle Squadron. The Moltke had been relatively lightly damaged in the earlier fighting, but as a battlecruiser, she would have had no chance of surviving if these mighty ships had opened fire on her with their mass 13.5-inch guns. So they did it. They sank her. Did they, did they, did they, did they sink her? Well, the rear British ship, the Thunderer, clearly saw the coloured lights of the Moltke recognition signal. Knew it was German then? But amazingly, didn't open fire. Her captain was under the strange misapprehension that the Moltke was a destroyer and he felt it wasn't worth opening fire on such a, a small, insignificant target and thereby giving away the, the position of the British dreadnoughts. Well, I don't know how you mistake the Moltke for a destroyer, but it was night, let's give him that. But what, how does he explain himself? And, and in explaining, it's one of those excuses that utterly condemn yourself from your own words. And you're going to say what Captain James Ferguson, HMS Thunderer, considered to be a, the reason for this. 
It was considered inadvisable uh, to show up the battle fleet unless obvious attack was intended. Yeah, and and the trouble with this is that chances like this don't last for long. Uh, the Moltke, how long would you say she was in sight for from the reports? Probably only about half a minute, and then she escaped unscathed into the night once again. Now, Sadlitz, what happens to her as she tries to get through the Grand Fleet? Well, she I mean, she's needing... absolutely buggered. I mean, it's, it's our favourite technical term, but... Well, she had an even closer escape, because as she tried to feel her way through the Grand Fleet, uh, as you mentioned, she was really crippled, and her speed's dropping down as low as seven knots on a couple of occasions. So she'd not gone far when at about 23.45, the worst fears of her crew seemed to be realised as they encountered the uh, lagging 6th Division of the 1st Battle Squadron. Now, that's the one that's fallen a bit behind, accompanied by the 5th Battle Squadron, uh, because of the Marlborough, which was, if you remember, torpedoed and lagging a bit. Uh, uh, what happened there? The 1st Battle Squadron, did they open fire with their mighty guns? No, incredibly, once more, none of the 1st Battle Squadron opened fire, although they'd indeed sighted the nocturnal meanderings of the Sadlitz. Now, just to show you, and again, this is a, an excuse that really, this sort of excuse that gets you put against the wall and shot. This is Vice Admiral Sir Cecil Burney, who's on the, the badly damaged HMS Marlborough, 1st Battle Squadron. Spag was observed ahead of the Marlborough, which crossed from starboard to port and back again from port to starboard, and then came down to the starboard side. It appeared to be a large ship and was challenged by the Revenge, who was answered by two letters, although they were not the correct ones. She then disappeared. Revenge says that the order to open fire was actually given, but was later countermanded. Why? And why didn't he do anything? I mean... Well, it's unquestionable that just a couple of hits would have sent the Sadlitz to the bottom. The disasters that had dogged the British battlecruisers since the fleet had first collided during the afternoon could have been avenged in a matter of moments. But once more, nothing's done. So the German fleet crossed the, the path of the Grand Fleet. It's only three miles behind the, the 5th Battle Squadron and the 6th Division of the 1st Battle Squadron. Oh, this is the moment of maximum danger. And do you know what? There are several sightings by officers. Now, we love the 5th Battle Squadron, don't we? But we're going to have to have a, a bit of criticism here. Why? Well, the, you, as you say, there were a number of sightings, but they failed either to engage the German dreadnoughts or to inform Jellicoe as to what was happening at the rear of the fleet. Ah, but somebody knows what's happening. Who's that? Who knows what's happening? Well, the Admiralty knew exactly what Shear was doing. Because since nightfall, Room 40 had intercepted and successfully decoded several of Shear's wireless messages that together made it crystal clear he was heading for Horn's Reef. Now, a number of these are summarised, oh dear, for Jellico in one single message which was sent at 22.41. What was that? German battle fleet ordered home at 9.14pm. Battle cruisers to the rear, course south Southeast, three quarters east. Speed, 16 knots. Now, this is invaluable intelligence. And when combined with the known position of the high seas fleet at the time, it was obvious that Shear was ordering his fleet in which route, the Horns Reef route. And it was obvious also that they pass astern of the Grand Fleet on its southerly course. And this signal was, re was read aboard the Iron Duke by the wireless people. It was decoded and passed to Jellicoe. When would you say? Well, it was sometime after 
Would you say this was important? Well, you could say the key to the battle had been placed in Jellicoe's hands. If he'd acted on it, he could have adjusted his course to meet with Shear off Horn's Reef as the day dawned a few hours later. Now, a lot of people think that that would have then just been, High Seas Fleet would have been so blah, blah, blah. But I don't think that... that, that it was really misty. And the, the Shear might just have disappeared in the mists again. It wasn't a, a done deal that they would sink, you know, was no, it? No, but it was undoubted, undoubtedly a splendid opportunity. Why did Jellicoe not use the key that had been presented to him to unlock the battle? Oh, are we going to have to criticise Jellicoe again? Well, I'm not so sure about this. The main reason was that Jellicoe had developed a deep mistrust of the intelligence sent to him by the Admiralty. Yeah, the fateful blunder through which the Admiralty had informed him that the High Seas Fleet was still in harbour, it still rankled with him. Yeah, but even more importantly, a more recent Admiralty signal, that was sent at 2158 and received at 2223, was also inaccurate. This claim that the High Seas Fleet was some eight miles to the southwest of the Grand Fleet at 2100, when it was still to the northwest at that time. Uh, now, I suppose... Uh, the failure does appear to lie with Jellicoe, yet yeah, it, it's, it's not all his fault. Because I picked on the word summarise. Why did I pick on that word? Well, that- the Admiralty knew more than they'd chosen to pass on to him. The signal they sent was largely based on a translation of Shear's orders to his fleet issued at 2110. Yet other evidence was also available that made it apparent that Horn's Reef was his destination. So at 21.06, Shear had sent a signal that is key. What was that signal? Commander-in-Chief to Airship Detachment, early morning reconnaissance at Horns Reef is urgently requested. Now, later on, they intercepted, uh, the, the, the Room 40 intercepted a signal sent at 22.32, ordering all destroyer flotillas to assemble by 0200 at... Horns Reef. Now, this wasn't the ma- end of the matter. A further series of German signals were intercepted and decoded as the night went on. Many of them gave Shears course a position and together they'd have swept away all the doubt in Jellicoe's mind. But they didn't. They just sent the summary that we read before. And, uh, well, have, has Jellicoe got an excuse? Well, this is a quote by Admiral Sir John Jellicoe aboard HMS Iron Duke. And this is what he says. The lamentable part of the whole business is that had the Admiralty in the first place sent all the information which they had acquired when their 1041 message was sent, there would have been little or no doubt in my mind as to the route by which Admiral Shear intended to return. Now, so what they've done is by summarising it, they've not summarised it wrongly, but it's just one message. The failure to provide all the evidence... Uh, collected by the decoding experts at Room 40. What do you think under... Why? What the fuck's going on? There's a pervasive culture of secrecy. The civilian expert cryptographers were considered mere labourers, unable to interpret the raw data that they gleaned from the German signals. So what happened? Well, instead of being passed direct to Jellicoe, the signals go to the director of operations. Uh, He's supposed to sort, sort the wheat from the chaff. There were lots of signals, remember, being... But in doing so, he fatally diluted and simplified the message so that the cumulative power of Shear's signals was missed in an anodyne summary. 
Yes, I think you've got it spot on there. Uh, uh, wireless signals aren't the only indicators uh, that's going on. Cause so, so there's a second part of the conundrum. Why, why did Jellicoe not realise that the sights and sounds of battle behind him exactly delineated the course of the high seas fleet as it battered away, its way across the rear of his fleet through the light forces? Exactly has been forewarned by the Admiralty signal. Well, yes, well... Uh, People say this, but th there's more to this as well. Well, Jellicoe could not clearly see what was happening. Just a lot of sound and fury, which may well have signified nothing. In the absence of wireless reports from the units involved, identifying the presence of dreadnoughts, he felt certain that they're just clashes between the light forces of the opposing fleets. And hence don't need his battleships to do anything. So this is what Admiral Sir John Jellicoe, he's on the Iron Duke, remember, says... The evidence signs of destroyer fighting in rear at a long distance astern led me to think that our torpedo boat destroyers were in action with the enemy torpedo boat destroyers and supporting light cruisers. And I considered that the effect of such fighting would be to turn the enemy to the northward or westward, even if he originally intended to take passage by the Horn's Reef. There was nothing to indicate that our destroyers were in action with enemy battleships. And I think that's key. Uh, on the other hand, on the other hand, on the other hand. Well, yeah, in the cold light of day, Jellicoe can't entirely escape the blame because he did nothing to find out exactly what was going on behind him. He didn't send any signals to the destroyer flotillas inquiring who they were engaging with and, and what the circumstances were. So it's a two-way failure. We've, we've, we've thrown mud at the destroyer captains, who, by the way, were fighting for their lives with their bridges often being concentrated on, if you see what I mean. But we've also got to censure Jellicoe for failing to be proactive in finding out what's going on. Yeah, and perhaps Jellicoe's age counted against him. At 58, that's 58. Can I just say, when I wrote this, I was about 42. At and 58, 58 seemed really old. How old are you, Gary? I'm 61. And I'm 58. Uh, how old am I, Gary? You're 67-ish. Eight. 68. At 58, he stood on the cusp oh, of old age. Oh, well, sure. I'm not having that, Gary. I don't know why you've said that. Now, he must have been suffering to some extent from the psychological after effects of a whole day of, of momentous decisions based on minimal information under conditions of considerable discomfort in physical danger and without any chance for real rest and recuperation. And he was, after all, 58. I just, I think this is, this is quite sensible. Um, um, if you think of the pressure he was in, and, and some people think that Jellicoe never really recovered for about four or five years from the effects because his mind bursts back into life in the 1920s when he's assessing the threat from the Japanese in the Far East and all that kind of thing. And he becomes Jellicoe we know and love again. Um, I, I, anyway, um, so that's a two-way condemnation of, of, of various people involved. But we try to understand why these mistakes were made and also to emphasise that we'd made all these mistakes and a lot more. Absolutely. Now, behind the Grand Fleet, the echoes of the gallant resistance of the 4th Flotilla were still dying away. Unfortunately, the British destroyer flotillas were, in the main, paralysed by their responsibilities and an ignorance of the situation that faced them. Yeah, so uh, well, by this we mean the commanders of the 11th Flotilla. What do they do? Well, they hold their station and continue to the south, saving their powder, as it were, for a morning confrontation. 
Yeah. Uh, now, to the east of the 4th Fertilla, that's uh, on the way, the next in line, if you like, on the, the Germans' Germans' way home, is the 13th Flotilla, the 9th, 10th Flotilla, and the 12th Flotilla. Uh, they're all doing what? They're all intent on sticking to their southerly courses. Now, concerned with maintaining their flotilla formations, worried by the responsibility of giving away their position, terrified by the possibility of attacking their own ships, there seems to have been a collective desire to avoid a confrontation with, with the unknown. Um, how do you feel about this again? Entirely understandable, uh, but it's not the traditional attitude expected of Royal Navy officers, is it? Now, we're going to have to cut short. There, there are numerous destroyer actions that night, uh, but we've set up the pattern, haven't we? we it will just become repetitious. Uh, most of the barrier placed by Jellicoe across Shear's line of retreat to Horn's Reef had been dispersed. Uh, because the, 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 the long line of German dreadnoughts managed to break right through the rear of the Grand Fleet, the destroy, the light forces, without losing a single major ship. Two light cruisers, who were they? The Elbing and the Rostock. Yep, they're in, they're, they're in danger of sinking. But on the debit side, five British destroyers were sunk and a further five had been very badly damaged. Now, uh, there is one ship, though, that's uh, on its last legs. Well, you're, I think you're referring to the battle cruiser Lutzoff, which had been in desperate trouble even before the night began. The waves had been pouring into the forward compartments ever since two shells had penetrated her below the waterline at around 1815. So th- this is six hours before... Uh, yeah. And, 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 uh, the, the, the crew damage control, all the rest of it. They're trying to, they're trying to g- g- make progress, but the engines are hardly working and the ship's waterlogged. They can't make any speed. Uh, what they're trying to do, they're trying to survive the night. And this is you, uh, telling us what Commander Passion of SMS Lutsov, first scouting group says. The speed of the ship had been reduced to seven knots on the earnest representations of the first officer. But with the corresponding revolutions, she probably only developed about five. The very low forecastle, Lutzov had no upper deck forward, was now under water. More sea had got up from the southwest and is breaking on the forecastle amid the heaps of empty cartridge cases. We were all deadbeat, officers and men, and the night dragged endlessly on. What of the morning? Now, gradually, the, the, the hopes that, that it'll survive, it becomes apparent that they can't stabilise the ship. And what happens in a ship? when well, water- more water fills the compartments below decks. Internal bulkheads were, one by one, failing under intolerable pressure. And remember the Titanic, all those programmes in the Titanic about how he, you know, it goes through one watertight compartment into the next and the next, and gradually it bloody sinks her. Um, so the, at last they give the order to abandon ship, and uh, she finally sinks. I think they open the, uh, the, the, the sausages, whatever they're called, seacocks. Not seacocks, Gary, seacocks. Uh, and she eventually sinks when? It's about 0145. Serious loss, do you think? Yeah, she was one of the most modern German battle cruisers, and she represented an equivalent loss to the Queen Mary. So that's a, this is a, a blowback. That'll teach them. Well, it won't, but yeah. Now, at this point, the high seas fleet's almost got through the British destroyer line, almost unscathed, but there's a last flare-up uh, when Captain Anselin Sterling, who's leading the 12th flotilla aboard the Faulkner, becomes aware, ha-ha, once again, 
So that's why I said it's repetitious of a line of big ships uh, ahead of him heading to the southeast. Uh, Sterling eyes up the situation. Uh, he's not sure who they are. He can't identify them, but he's sure they're not British. And what does he do? Well, acting upon his convictions, he ordered the first division of his flotilla, led by Commander George Campbell in the Obedient, to attack. He also signalled to Jellicoe that he had sighted German battleships. And this is Captain Anselin Sterling. To C&C. Urgent. Priority. Enemy battleships in sight. My position. Ten miles astern of first battle squadron. That's perfect. That's exactly the sort of signal that should have been pouring into Jellicoe from all his destroyer flotillas uh, throughout the night action. It's almost incredible to realise that Sterling was the first officer from the destroyer flotillas actually to mention that the German battleships were present. So, Jellicoe gets the message. Hooray! What happens? Well, you can imagine that it was all the more frustrating, therefore, that the signal failed to get through. It didn't get through. Well, it's not the most reliable of mediums in those days, and we don't know how it didn't get through, but it didn't. So Jellicoe never got the message. What does Sterling do? Well, he leads the destroyers into the attack at 0203. Um, so what happens? Well, well, I think this is good. Well, finally, the British destroyers revealed their true worth. As well as the Onslaught, the Faulkner, Obedient and Marvel all fired two or four torpedoes, totaling some 12 in all from a range of about 2,000 yards before swiftly turning away. Now, these torpedoes cause chaos in the German line. It's forced to turn some six points away to starboard, and individual ships are desperately manoeuvring about, trying to dodge the onrushing torpedoes. It's sort of combing the line, searching for victims. Wow. Well, one actually ran underneath the Grosser Kerr first. Another self-detonated as it passed through the line, and there were numerous close shaves. Oh, in the end, despite... I mean, sure, these are good efforts by Sterling and his uh, officers. Only two torpedoes struck home. But they have a devastating effect. This is naval warfare again. What happens? Well, they both hit the pre-dreadnought uh, Pomern at approximately 0210. The magazine was breached and she blew up in an instantly devastating explosion, killing all 844 members of her crew. And the blast could be heard miles away. 844. Again, although it's noticeable, that's only the same as that that old cruiser, uh, the uh, Black Prince. Oh, wow. Um, Now, the attacking British destroyers, they're partly covered by a a self-generated smokescreen. But the onslaught, that's the last in line, because uh, she, she's last in line, the Germans have got more time, and they hit her hard. And this is able seaman George Wainford, who was on the onslaught. I remember interviewing him. I think it was in Dartford. Uh, wow, uh, what an interview it was. It's freely available on the War Museum. Go on the War Museum site, type in IWM and George Wainford, you should get it out. He says this, We fired our torpedoes, and of course other ships in the flotilla did the same. And there's a terrific explosion, and a German ship blew up. Core, I said, we got her. And the moment I said that, either one shell or a salvo hit our bridge. There was a terrific bang. A fire started on the port side of the forecastle, where all the hammocks underneath the forecastle desk, deck were, desk, deck were stowed. And what a story he tells. And there's how the, the, the skipper dies saying at least the ship's done it. It was a fantastic story. Well, the shells, uh, the German shells raked across the destroyer to terrible effect. Yeah, but Sterling had succeeded in launching a deliberate, focused, determined attack on the German line. Uh, What's that in contrast to? 
Well, the weak leadership of the 11th, the 9th, 10th and the 13th flotillas and the brave but reactive rather than proactive responses of the 4th flotillas. Well, it's therefore very, it's doubly unfortunate, therefore. He's forced to attack from a less advantageous position. Uh, and he hasn't really got night cover because it's getting lighter. And the Germans do manage to dodge most of the, of the torpedoes. It, there's also, yeah, well, Sterling also is let down a bit by some of his subordinates. How? Well, the lack of initiative shown by many of them who allowed themselves to be thwarted by every mishap which occurred while manoeuvring in the presence of the enemy. No less than seven of uh, Sterling's 15 destroyers failed to fire any torpedoes. So the, 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 the flotilla's done well, 12th flotilla, but still... About half of them, if you like, don't don't don't, uh, don't do it. Now, by 0330, the main body of the high seas fleet has reached the Horns Reef entrance <clears throat> to the Heligoland minefield. Uh, oh, so what happens next? At about 0400, Jellicoe received a signal from the Admiralty informing it, informing him that at 0230, the high seas fleet had just been 17 miles from the Horns Reef. What does that mark? Well, it, it actually marks the end of all hopes and dreams of a real dare tag on the 1st of June. So, no glorious 1st of June? No, because this unambiguous intelligence indicated that by the time it was received, the Germans must already have reached the safety within uh, the Horns Reef Channel back to port. So there's absolutely no chance of overhauling them. The Battle of Jutland is over. But not... Our series of podcasts. Cool, we have one more. Jutland Aftermath, which has got some of the most horrible quotes in I can remember. Um, what a series this has been. And if you want to read more, then there's my book, uh, Jutland, I expect it's called, wrote with, written with Nigel Steele, and it's called Death in the Grey Waste, which I chose that title and I was taking the piss. But that's actually what's printed on the cover. Just shows you you should never... Try and be amusing, because you're not as funny well, you as you shouldn't. think. No, not as funny as I think I am. Is no. no. Well, that, that, a lot of people say that about the, the podcast. Mm. <laughs> they do include you in that a little bit. No, I think they mean you. Yeah. Cheers, Pete. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?